I'm back with another story I'd like to share with you. Or rather, I feel the need to share with you, as there's nothing I like about it when someone goes missing in our national parks. The American Park Ranger is same as British Search and Rescue Team, and on this occasion they are contacted immediately. However, they are always at least half an hour's flight away. And even then, they only have so much flight time before they are forced to turn their helicopter around to refuel. This leaves a lot of searching down to the rangers, as we know all of the areas and trails very well. It's always an adrenaline pump situation to be in, as you never know what the outcome will be. Usually, the helicopter spots the lost people within 20 minutes of joining the search. But then there are the missing people. You should know that between the rangers, we refer to these situations with two categories, lost people and missing people. A lost person is a normal search and rescue scenario. Somebody went down the wrong trail and hasn't been seen in a while, and perhaps throwing a broken leg for good measure. The main thing is that we find them, even if they are a little beaten up. A missing person is somebody who hasn't been seen for anything over a day, or if the situation just seems off. For example, when people just seem to disappear, I have one particular case I'm going to share with you. I will warn you closer to the time, but there is some pretty explicit content in this memory, so here is your far pre-warning. It was a pretty standard shift. The sky was just starting to dim as the sun started sinking towards the horizon, and I was sat in the ranger station taking calls and checking emails. When a woman comes bursting to the door, absolutely beside herself. Her hair is a mess with leaves tangled in it, her makeup is all smudged down and across her face, and her eyes are red from crying. She's telling me that her son had been by her side one minute, and when he went to the bushes just off the trail for a wee, he never came back. There was no scream, no noise, no nothing. I knew at this instant we had a missing person on our hands, and my heart stopped. A missing child was always bad news and seldom had a happy ending. He had been in the bush for maybe two minutes when his mother called out to him, and she went running into the woods to try and find him. She was very lucky to have made it back to the trail without getting lost or worse, if you ask me. I tried my best to calm her down and took her to a map, and after showing her where our station was, I asked her to try and locate their average location at the time while I made some calls. She protested at first, but after assuring her we had dealt with this kind of situation many times before, she brought herself to trust my instructions and started tracing her tracks on the map. I immediately called the search and rescue team closest to us and told them the exact location was to be confirmed, but to dispatch a helicopter for a missing child. They gave us an ETA of 40 minutes. I gather all the rangers on duty, and after confirming with the woman where she believed they were when he disappeared, we all get assigned grids on the map to check, and we head out. We are very thorough as we search, and we each square off the grid very effectively, and do not leave so much as a rock unturned. So we're getting deeper and deeper into the woods. At this point, we've been searching for a good couple of hours. But the dogs hadn't picked up the boy's scent yet, and we were merely doing a routine comb-styled search. 
The helicopter was buzzing around non-stop, and everybody was quiet. No one really spoke much while looking for children. I think it's because of the fact that it's a child we are looking for, not an adult who may be able to look after themselves. I'm getting this heavy knotted feeling in my gut, you know the kind you get when you just know that it's going to be a fruitless effort. I should also mention that it's getting dark now, and there's not much light left, and what little is left is completely blocked out by the trees, so it's flashlights from here on out. We'll never find this kid bro, my colleague said in a completely flat voice. Don't talk like that, we never know what we can find while searching. I reply sharply, though deep down in my gut, I knew that child was gone. The helicopter heads back for some more fuel and comes back again after a further few hours of searching. It is getting very dark, and we call it a night as everyone needs to be back before the forest is completely consumed by darkness. The woman stayed in one of the medical beds we had previously prepared for her son, though I doubt she slept at all. I watched the cameras that lay deep in the forest, somewhat in the area the child could have walked in. After an hour or so of nothing, I eventually decided to call it a night. We didn't find this boy the next day or the day after that for that matter. Me and my friend Cass decided to go on a drive about an hour ago because there was a spot I'd been looking at going to at night because it was secluded and a good spot to smoke in general. Around when we started talking about it, he noted that he started smelling something sweet, cherries and a hint of cigar. I was familiar with this entity as it's been around my room since I moved in back in 2020. It's not a malevolent entity and is actually quite kind. Cass stated that it felt like he'd been hugged and just overall felt comfortable with the entity around him. So we go on the drive and we're talking and all, and we turn down the last road until the destination when I saw a tree down in the road. It didn't block the road completely, but it was too narrow of a gap for my car to fit. Well, I knew a back road that led to the same destination, so we turned around and headed down that way. It was a very wooded back road. No service, very few houses for miles and surrounded by trees. It was the type of road to only have one lane because of how unused it is. As I'm driving we're talking, and we pass over a bridge. I pointed out as a spot I wanted to take him another time since it's just a neat area. Not long after we passed it, he said, did you see that? It's a very curvy road so I initially assumed it was an animal as I hadn't seen anything. I asked what he saw and he said, it looked like something that crossed the road. Immediately I got an intense feeling of dread. I asked if he felt it too, and he confirmed that he did so I stopped the car, took a moment, and immediately said, we're not supposed to be here. He agreed and I turned around, heading back to where we just came. The dread got more intense, but after crossing the bridge it eased, but was still there. I stated that whatever it was isn't allowed to follow us home, and it wasn't allowed on my property. It started to disappear, and we kept seeing things along the road like shadows. As I was driving to the main road a white truck pulled up very fast to a stop sign on a side road, almost as if out of thin air and pulled out behind us. 
I didn't take much note of it until I looked in my rear view and saw it tailing the hell out of us. I pointed it out and Cass said he didn't like the feeling he got from the truck. We got to the stop sign that lead out to the main road, and I purposefully didn't turn my blinker on in case it was following us, but the truck did and it was turning the same way as us. After I made the turn I waited a few moments before looking back in the rear view, and it was gone. It disappeared into thin air. The drive home was silent and Cass waited until we got back to talk about things he knew and should have thought of before we even got in the car. I was telling the story to a friend over Discord and asked Cass to describe the thing he saw on the road, asking if it walked on two legs or four. He said, it didn't have legs. It was brown and looked like a head that just crossed the road. Asking him about it, now he said that it was tall, taller than the doorframe of my closet, and he saw it from a distance so he didn't know what its body looked like. I asked if it could have been a bat, and he emphasized that it couldn't have been. During the drive home, we both noted that it felt like there was a hand on each of our shoulders. He pointed out that the log in the road could have been a sign not to go, as well as the friendly entity that appeared in my room beforehand. I'm thinking it's a certain W-word entity names hold power, and I will not refer to it by name. This happened in Alabama. The vast, frozen wilderness of Alaska was our hunting ground. Our objective was simple, caribou. The trip began as any other, a group of us, seasoned hunters, stepping into the icy tundra, armed with rifles and a lifetime of experience. What we encountered there, however, was far beyond our wildest imaginations. It started with the tracks. Unusual enormous, with a stride that suggested a creature of immense size. They were like nothing we'd ever seen, unlike any beast known to modern science. A sense of unease spread among us, but we were hunters. We followed the tracks drawn by the allure of the unknown. The Alaskan weather, always fickle, took a turn for the worse. A blizzard blew in, an unforgiving wall of snow and wind that reduced visibility to mere feet. But the tracks were fresh, and the promise of uncovering the creature that made them drove us forward. It was a mistake. The blizzard was relentless, the cold biting through our gear. And then, through the swirling snow, we saw it. A monstrous silhouette, enormous and hulking, against the white landscape. Its eyes glowed an eerie blue, and it let out a sound that chilled us to the bone. A deep, resonating growl that echoed across the tundra. The creature attacked. It was quick, far quicker than its size suggested. We fought back, our rifles lighting up the blizzard, but it was like shooting at a shadow. One by one, my fellow hunters fell, their screams lost in the howling wind. In the end, it was just me. Wounded, half-frozen, I lay in the snow, the taste of blood in my mouth. The creature loomed over me, its massive form a terrifying sight against the blizzard. I closed my eyes, accepting my fate. But then, a sound cut through the storm, a sound that spelled hope, the thumping blades of a helicopter. I looked up, squinting against the snow, and there it was, a rescue helicopter hovering above. I raised my hand, mustering the last of my strength to wave. The creature, startled by the noise, 
retreated into the storm, its monstrous form disappearing into the white. I don't remember much after that. The cold, the pain, the blinding light of the helicopter's searchlight, and then blackness. I woke up in a hospital bed, my body a network of bandages and IV lines. I was the sole survivor, a testament to the dual threats of nature's wrath and the monstrous creature of the Alaskan tundra. The memory of the creature's glowing eyes still haunts me, a chilling reminder of the unknown dangers lurking in the wilderness. I've spent my entire life in the woods, hunting and living off the land. It was a way of life passed down to me by my father and uncle, and now I was passing it on to my cousin. One particular day, we were out on a woodcock hunt. My dad, uncle, cousin, and our dogs were positioned to my left in the thick woods. I was stationed on the outskirts, ready to shoot any birds that tried to escape. I was in a relatively open area, scattered trees standing sentinels far apart from each other. My dad was just inside the edge of the woods, barely twenty feet away from me. Something, a gut instinct perhaps, prompted me to look to my right. The area was wide open, offering a clear view for at least a hundred yards. As I turned, I noticed a man about twenty feet away from me, walking directly towards me with his head down. He wore a red shirt, a brown vest, blue jeans, and a brown Jones-style hunting cap. His hair was black, but he was unarmed, with no gun in sight. Confused, I turned to my dad and pointed out the stranger. However, when he looked in the direction I was pointing, he replied, What man? I swiveled my gaze back to where the man had been just seconds before, but he was gone. He had disappeared without a trace. There were no hiding spots in sight. The landscape was too open, too bare. It bothered me for a long time. I was certain I hadn't been hallucinating. The man was solid, his details etched in my mind with crystal clarity. This was just one of many strange, unexplainable experiences I've had in these woods. The mystery of the disappearing man was yet another testament to the fact that there's much we don't understand about the world around us. Back in 1991, I stumbled upon an alleged secret government facility in Hawaii. As a former employee there, I knew I had to share the extraordinary things that had been happening behind those heavily guarded walls for years. The facility housed a classified unit that trained psychic warriors capable of remote viewing into realities and timelines where it seemed humans had never set foot. I, William Edgar, worked at this mind-bending facility in the late 80s. What I witnessed there was beyond the realms of everyday comprehension. Every military personnel was versed in the art of psychic warfare, enabling them to be deployed into other timelines and universes. They harnessed clairvoyance and precognition to achieve their mission objectives. The U.S. government, according to my insights, had discovered an interdimensional travel method for these classified units. They manipulated the biophysical bodies of personnel to induce out-of-body experiences, leaving their physical bodies behind. I believe this secret government operation aimed to harness time and space's power, accessing other universes that existed in the same spatial plane but different temporal ones. 
When a person was said to have left their body, they entered what's known as the biophysical phase. As per conspiracy theory lore, leaving the physical form behind enables a person to defy the laws of physics, walking through walls, flying, and even traveling through different timelines or parallel universes. They could venture into epochs before human civilization emerged on Earth. I noticed that recruits were being selected from top-tier universities across America. Many of these students showed exceptional potential for psychic abilities, often linked to their youth. These recruits underwent rigorous training to sharpen their abilities before they were deemed ready for field missions. Tragically, my life was cut short in a fatal car accident in 1993, shortly after I released this information. The Hawaiian government and the United States government were quick to respond, dismissing all my claims as preposterous and absurd. Yet, I can only share the truth as I experienced it. In the year 2023, I found myself camping alone in the woods, a place where I sought peace and solitude. My first few nights were rather peaceful marked only by the typical sounds of nature. But one morning, I woke up to the sight of my campsite in utter chaos. My fire pit was scattered, wood and ash strewn about haphazardly, and my favorite logs split in two. The worst part, however, was the monstrous footprint left in the ash, a chilling reminder of something inhuman. Despite the unease, I decided to venture deeper into the woods. I chose a small clearing surrounded by a dense patch of trees and shrubs, which offered some semblance of safety. I hoped that this move would be the end of the strange occurrences, but I couldn't have been more wrong. On my first night in the new spot, I woke up around midnight, nature calling. The air was buzzing with an energy I couldn't quite place, and a sense of dread hung heavy in the air. But sleep-dazed and needing to relieve myself, I stepped out of the tent. As I did, I heard a whimpering sound from behind, the same sound I'd heard nights before. I turned around slowly, and there it was. A tall, thin figure was standing in the moonlight, its head bowed, revealing a face unlike anything I'd seen. Its body was eerily contorted, and its limbs twisted in a way that seemed to defy the laws of anatomy. The pale skin under the moonlight was hairless and sickly, and the rotten smell in the air confirmed my worst fears. This was the creature responsible for the footprint and the chaos at my previous campsite. Suddenly, it looked up. Its eyes were a burning red, filled with an anger and intensity that made my blood run cold. In an instant, it was on me, slashing its claws across my chest. The pain was immediate and intense, and blood soaked my clothes. In a fit of rage, the creature hurled me against a nearby tree, the impact breaking my ribs and blurring my vision. Somehow, I managed to escape and stumbled my way to the ER, arriving at 4 a.m., drenched in blood and babbling about the creature in the woods. The terror of that night still haunts me, a vivid reminder of the horrifying cryptid that lurks in the shadows of the woods. I've spent various stretches of time backpacking and camping throughout the U.S. and seen some strange things. 
My brother and I came across an abandoned trailer town of sorts that scared the hell out of us. We also came across a rundown town really, really small out in New Mexico that seemed to have one person living in it. We based it on the fact that there was still some food and supplies there that were fairly fresh, perhaps just a few days old. Spent a couple days there trying to find the person, just to find out why they were staying in the town. Never found a person. We found the skeletal remains of an unknown number of deer ranging from bucks to fawn ensnared in a barbed wire fence that encompassed a 10 by 10 area in the Ozarks. A few of the skulls topped the fence posts, and there was one post in the middle of this area that had decaying deer bodies looked to be two, but there were only six hooves jutting out of the wreckage wrapped around it. We found a dummy hanging from a tree while in the Yukon Territory of Canada, literally out in the middle of the woods. No reason for it, as far as we know. And we also came across a dead junkie on a road out of Olympia. Obvious OD, as he had his arm tied and a needle in hand. Eyes were glazed over and staring straight ahead, mouth slightly ajar. In the summer of 2023, I embarked on a backpacking trip in Yellowstone National Park, an adventure that would lead me to an eerie discovery. We were hiking high above the tree line, approximately 10, 500 feet up, on a ridge overlooking a tranquil, secluded lake. The view was breathtaking, the pristine beauty of nature as far as the eye could see. As we trekked along the ridge, something unusual caught my eye, standing out starkly against the rocky terrain. There, in the middle of nowhere, was a horse skull. No body, just the skull, bleached white by the sun, its hollow eye sockets staring into oblivion. It was a macabre but fascinating sight, and I couldn't help but wonder about the story behind it. We pressed on, reaching our campsite, which was a short distance away from the lake, near the location where we'd found the horse skull. The day's hike had been long and strenuous, so we decided to descend to the lake for a refreshing swim. However, as we approached the water's edge, we were met with a gruesome scene that froze us in our tracks. There, rotting at the edge of the lake, was the body of the horse, its flesh decaying and bones protruding in a grotesque display. The sight was profoundly disturbing. But what was even more bizarre was the sight of negative film strips floating in the water, scattered around the shore near the decaying body. Some of the film strips had washed ashore, their images distorted and faded, but still visible. The sight was eerie, to say the least, a strange and morbid juxtaposition of life and death. It was as if we had stumbled upon the remnants of some dark, unsolved mystery. The horse skull, the decaying body, the negative film strips, all were pieces of a puzzle that seemed to defy understanding. That night, as we huddled around our campfire, the image of the horse skull and the decaying body haunted me. The lake, which had earlier seemed so serene, now felt like an enigma, its still waters holding onto a secret that we had inadvertently disturbed. The sight of the negative film strips, each one holding a snapshot of an unknown story, only added to the mystery. I often find myself reflecting on that day, the memory etched in my mind. The horse skull, the decaying body, 
The negative film strips all served as a stark reminder of the unexpected and often inexplicable things one can encounter while venturing into the wilderness. The encounter occurred on July 6, 2005, at about 11.30 p.m. I had a long day in San Diego, then afterward went to the beach at Del Mar, California for some surf fishing. I arrived at my home in San Marcos at about 11 p.m. After cleaning my fish and showering, I was very tired. I went out to my carport for a smoke and a look at the night sky. I looked north thinking about a recent UFO sighting and wondering what it was all about. In the distance, at a couple hundred feet, I saw a faintly visible moving object that flitted from side to side. Whatever it was, it reflected light from the streetlights. Its side-to-side -side movement was so quick, I couldn't tell if it was one object or two. The object then zipped directly over my neighbor's house across the street. By this time, I was certain I'd never seen anything like it. It continued to move side to side, in a space of approximately 50 feet. It then stopped and I observed it more clearly. It may have had big eyes and wing-like appendages, and was probably two to three feet in width. It remained still, and I could see wavering reflections from its wings, which were not beating like a bird, but showed shimmering reflections from the streetlights. I felt the hair on my head rise all the way down my back to my ankles. It appeared to be looking at me as I smoked my cigarette. I felt threatened and said out loud, I see you. Then it went from stationary to out of sight, right over my head in an instant. I came out from under my covered carport and turned to follow its movement. Immediately, it zipped into view directly above my head, obviously studying me. I could see really weird large and intensely dark eyes. It seemed surprised by my looking right at it. It didn't like being seen. My apprehension rose even higher. It turned away and disappeared like a shot. It had a bird-like shape, but was thicker. My impression was of reflections of the streetlights on wing-like appendages and big dark eyes. It wasn't a bird, bat, or any familiar nocturnal creature. Its movements did not seem explicable in comparison to any creature that flies by beating its wings. The hills and mountains are so rugged and inaccessible near my home that anything could remain hidden and make nighttime forays at will. I read about Thunderbirds, but I'm not sure if this was one of these. Patterson, Waller County, Texas the one my buddies and I came across on April 15 near Katy, Texas, while cutting through Morton Road between 362 and Durkin Road had amber-looking eyes. It was around 11.30 p.m. when we cut through Morton Road. We backed out of that dirt road so fast, and then drove south on Durkin, and then left onto Royal Road, while the entire time looking over to the open field with our spotlight and the one rifle in the truck. Once we made a ride onto 362 and headed south, we began feeling a bit more relaxed. We then took it all the way south to 359, and then made a left on Highway 90, and didn't stop till we made it to our friend's house in Katy. We were coming from Patterson, Texas, where one of my other friends lives. 
We also like to go through that patch on Morton Road during the day because it is like off-roading, and who doesn't like that? We originally thought of heading to Royal High School on Royal Road and decorating its grounds with beer cans, but we instead decided to turn left and off-road at night when we drove past Morton Road. It is the reason why we were so chilled about coming across what we thought was a large dog till it turned around and stood on two legs and growled at us. Its growl was deep but low, it rattled the entire truck. One of my friends told me that the only thing they remember was the sound it made while breathing which was that of a horse. My buddy's truck is lifted and usually when I stand in front of the hood, it is around the high part of my chest, I'm 5 feet 8. But when this thing stood up, you could see most of the waist area so it had to be taller than me. I can't give an exact measurement because I just don't know. All I know is that it wasn't a bear. I've seen black bears before. The spotlight caught it and it looked like my buddy's German Shepherd and or its mulligator with amber looking eyes. Maybe it was a big koi dog or koi wolf or a bear with mange, but it was pretty tall and wide. It happened so quickly that I just... I'm having a hard time being eligible with my thoughts here. Sorry about that. So we put it in reverse and got the hell out of there and drove all the way to Katie without stopping anywhere. Then we barricaded ourselves in it with R-15s and shotguns and just sat there in the middle of the dark with our backs to each other for the rest of the night. We didn't leave the house until midday on Sunday to check the dashboard camera, which had recorded over the entire incident the previous night. Our cell phones recorded nothing but jumble and my buddy's dog wouldn't come near the truck as it kept whimpering around it with its tail behind its legs. The dashboard camera recorded over all the data on Sunday. We went through it and it was from when the truck was parked at our friend's house. The cell phone quality was so bad we erased it. I dropped my phone on the floor of the truck and didn't find it until Sunday afternoon. It is not something we were planning for like most of the videos you see on the web. Monday morning came around and we all called in sick because we refused to get out of the house until the sun was out. This obviously upset our family members' parents who thought we were being irresponsible, and we finally grew the courage to return to Morton Road on Monday afternoon. Six trucks entered Morton Road off Durkin Road with high-powered semi-assault weapons, shotguns, and hunting rifles. We didn't find any tracks either which is weird because it had rained heavily the past few days so the ground was soft and there was standing water on Morton Road. The only thing we found was this perverse stench like something had died mixed with metallic smell blood and urine ammonia. The dogs we brought with us, two German Shepherds, one Mulligator, and one Doberman were all whimpering nervously around the site like they didn't want to be there. After the incident, I have spent the rest of April just reading everything I could about dogman encounters. My other three friends don't want to talk about it either, and one broke up with his girlfriend of three years because he just refused to spend the weekend hiking with her through the attic's reservoir hiking trails. They got back together after we were able to get him to open up about it. But I'm the only one that has put this on the web. It has been a month, and I still refuse to be out later than sundown. I don't leave the house early in the morning anymore to go to the gym at 5am. In fact, 
I have changed my life around completely, and that includes no more before bed walks at night with the dog. I have installed security bars on all my first floor windows, added spotlights to my entire home, and placed better security cameras. I also no longer drive through country roads even during the day, especially by myself because I feel exposed. Last week, I refused to go fishing on the Brazos River and turned down heading for the weekend to Lake Conroe. I've always wanted to go fishing at the end of East Matagorda Bay, but to get there one would have to off-road on a 4x4 west from Matagorda Beach on a dirt trail for about 15 miles. Yet after this experience, I no longer feel safe. I just want to go back to being ignorant about the things that go bumping about at night. It had been a year since the hunting trip that changed my friend's life. As a former U.S. Marine, he was someone I'd always admired for his resilience and strength. So when he went missing in the wilderness, it struck fear into all of us who knew him. We were hunting in the mountains, a group of us. It was meant to be a boy's weekend, a chance to bond and let off some steam. But then he got lost. We heard his panicked voice over the radio, increasingly delirious, speaking of being pursued by a terrifying creature. He was hiding, he said, in a crevice in the mountainside, too scared to move, eat or drink. We found him days later, severely dehydrated and in a state of extreme fear. His recovery was slow, and the trauma from his ordeal was so severe that he was admitted to a psychiatric facility. A year later, he reached out. I noticed he was on anti-anxiety medication, and he never ventured out at night. It was clear the experience had deeply scarred him. One night, over a few drinks at his home, he finally opened up about his harrowing experience. The details were chilling. He spoke of the first night alone in the mountains, of a guttural growl that filled him with dread, of feeling watched. His flashlight and radio had stopped working, leaving him blind and isolated. In his panic, he ran until he found a small crevice in the mountainside where he hid. His description of the creature was something straight out of a horror film. A seven-foot-tall, almost human figure with thin, wrongly jointed limbs. Its skin was pale, like it had been rotting, and its eyes. They were a fierce, burning red. On the second day, while the creature was absent, his radio had briefly sprung back to life, and he had been able to call for help. But after that night, he refused to confirm or deny his story. I've been researching since then, trying to understand the mystery haunted by his tale, by the lingering smell of rotting flesh at the rescue site, and the eerie feeling of being watched. Despite the fear, there's a part of me that needs to know that wants to understand what he went through. But sometimes, late at night, when the shadows dance on my walls, I can't help but wonder if there are some things better left unknown. The heat of the New Mexico sun beat down on me as I set off on a solitary hike, eager to explore the vast wilderness while hunting for hidden geocaches. The vast openness was a sight to behold, but the true allure was what was hidden in the wild, waiting to be discovered. After a few hours of navigating through dense foliage, 
I found myself in a clearing. There, I was met with a sight that seemed out of place in the serene wilderness. Half-built and crumbling concrete structures were scattered around, their skeletal frames of protruding rebar piercing the clear blue sky. A dirt road, untouched by recent rains and worn by tire treads, cut through the clearing, leading in from a direction opposite to the one I had come from. The site was oddly chilling a ghost town in the making, forsaken mid-construction and left to crumble in the otherwise untouched wilderness. Signs of recent activity footprints and freshly discarded trash hinted that the site was still frequented, adding to the eerie atmosphere. It felt post-apocalyptic, a relic of civilization left to decay among nature. Alone and unsettled by the unexpected discovery, I felt a twinge of unease crawl up my spine. The thrill of geocaching took a back seat to the creeping sense of dread permeating the area. I decided to abort my hunt, choosing to retrace my steps and leave the uncanny sight behind. It was only later that I discovered the truth about the site. It was, in fact, a battleground for paintball tournaments designed to mimic an urban warfare environment. There were no signs of spent paintballs or colorful splatters on the concrete walls, leaving no clues about its real purpose. This explained the seemingly misplaced urban decay in the heart of the wilderness. Yet, knowing its purpose did little to diminish the eerie impression the sight had left on me. Its incongruity with its surroundings served as a stark reminder of how jarring the hand of humanity can be amidst the beauty of nature.